Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERA Arlington, 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. When caring for a loved one with dementia, a caregiver's life becomes very complicated and their decisions often feel more complex. Even for the most prepared family members, the weight of the new diagnosis can seem overwhelming as they navigate this challenging and demanding time. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Landsverk, geriatrician and author of Living in the Moment, Overcoming Challenges and Finding Moments of Joy in Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias. She will talk about actions and initial steps family members need to take regarding care when a loved one is diagnosed with dementia, and she'll also provide advice about how families can provide best quality of life for the relative as the disease progresses, and also how specialists can help. So welcome, Dr. Lansford, and thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Cheryl. I'm delighted to be here. Well, Dr. Lansford, before we get started on the questions, I very much enjoyed your book in the sense of providing so much information. And so before we get into the questions, I was just wondering if you could just give us a quick overview of what led you to write Living in the Moment, Overcoming Challenges and Finding Moments of Joy in Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias. Well, as a young doctor uh, over 20 years ago, I remember one elder gentleman whose wife brought him in saying he's having chest pain. And he was rather cantankerous, um, but we were explaining, you know, well, we, we have to do an EKG and we need to see what's going on. And basically, um, he was fighting us and he was pulling off the tabs for the EKG. And, you know, finally, after going around and around for about 20 minutes, I just said, you know, you've got to come home. We can't do anything with him. And then I felt really bad because I was like, well, that's not very useful. I didn't really help him at all. Um, and after a couple of years in practice, I went back and did my fellowship at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City and just learned, you know, about a whole new world of care for elders and particularly those with dementia. I mean, you know, I'd taken care of older people before, but we really didn't get much training about of people with dementia. And you have to focus on the whole person and, you know, the, the way of just taking care of a medical problem. You have to put that into the context of the experience of that person in their world and take care of that experience first. So now when I see someone who, a woman who's lived by herself in her cabin up in Tahoe uh, for the last eight years and won't take her medicine and won't, you know, allow any help, I realize that I have to 
address her behavior and her aggression and her paranoia before I can even think about treating her diabetes. That is a good segue into what we're going to be talking about today. And we really want to, as you had suggested in your book, focus on the caregiving uh, because of the the symptoms here. But let's start with just a, a tutorial so that our listeners understand. Explain to us, Dr. Landsberg, what is dementia and what causes it? Think of dementia like uh, brain decline or brain failure. Um, there's a lot of different things that cause heart failure. Well, there's a lot of different things that cause brain failure or dementia. People often say, is it Alzheimer's or is it dementia? Well, Alzheimer's is the most common kind of dementia, um, but we'll circle back to that. The incidence uh, for people over the age of 65, about 10% of people have dementia, and over the age of 85, about 50% have dementia. And I think that, you know, we're much more aware of it now than we were when my, you know, grandfather had hardening of the arteries back in the late 60s and died 30 years earlier than my grandmother. Um, We are better, but we still have a lot to learn. So the Alzheimer's is a deposition of proteins in the brain. It's a smooth progression, uh, which can either be quick, you know, people can decline over four or five years, or it can be slow. It can be over, you know, 15 or 20 years. And what happens is it affects, you know, their memory, the hippocampus, but it also affects their judgment and their emotions. um, And they they become less uh, um, connected with the world. You know, they might be less interested in things that were important to them um, in church with family. They may forget medications, they may forget appointments, they may forget to pay bills. And it usually goes on for a year or two before people really kind of realize that something seriously is going on. It's not just, you know, they're they're getting a little bit more ornery. So Alzheimer's is the most common. Vascular dementia or small stroke is the next most common. Uh, that's uh, associated with all the risk factors for heart attack and stroke. Um, and it's associated with uh, obesity, diabetes, and smoking. Um, so the, the good news is, particularly between those two um, diseases, it, that's not 100% uh, of the cases of dementia, but there's an, a good amount of overlap. Um, and we can decrease our risk of dementia by over 50%. If we eat a good, you know, plant-based diet, control our blood pressure, blood sugar, weight, don't smoke, and actually really don't drink, um, and then exercise 30 minutes every day, we can decrease our risk of dementia by 50%. I wanted to put some good news in there because it otherwise can sound a little depressing. That's very helpful. And you are really describing not only the common forms of dementia and how they differ, but and also... Uh, it's very helpful in terms of the first signs. If someone, a family member, is really not noticing, but maybe beginning to notice that there are those changes that you've already described, are there any kind of simple tests that can be done at home to to screen for dementia before the family member goes to see a physician? What 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 would we need to know? Well, there's something called the mini cog 
and you ask people to remember three words, apple, table, penny, or something like that. And then you have them draw a clock and make it say, you know, 1110, uh, or, you know, the the minute hand goes to the um, two and the hour hand goes to the 11. And then you ask them for those three words again. Well, you know, that's a fairly sensitive screen. It's just a screen. You can still be in trouble. Can't do that. But I think that's the um, that's a very quick way to check. Another thing I like to do, because I, there's several areas of my interest. One is diagnosing dementia before it's obvious to everyone. Um, when you go to the doctor, they will often do the mini mental status exam or the MOCA, the Montreal Cognitive Assessment. And that's the 30-point test they ask you, you know, the day, the date, you know, where are you located, draw this design, you know, do this three-step task. And that will, that's a that generally good screen will catch people in moderate dementia. It doesn't necessarily catch people in early dementia when they still have control of their uh, finances. And that's when they are at highest risk for financial elder abuse, for being swindled. And we can talk about that later, but, you know, these days are, there's so many ways to get swindled, whether it's by the phone, whether it's internet, you know, by mail. So you definitely want to have an idea what's going on early. So the other thing I say to do at home is ask your loved one if they're in charge of the finances, you know, what's 25%, $22.50? And if you can't calculate that, then you really shouldn't be doing finance alone. Well, and that is very helpful in terms of family members beginning to realize that something is amiss here. And one aspect that I thought was really interesting about when a person is diagnosed with dementia, you use the term living in the moment. And we hear that sometimes, but how does that apply to uh, associating with a person with um, diagnosis? What does that mean? And then why should family members also live in the moment? Help us understand what that concept means. Well, when someone is recognized to have dementia, it's just a time of huge grief. You're, you know, you have started to lose the person that they are. You know, there's fear about the future. And often, you know, there are some older guidebooks who, that are just really depressing. Um, I mean, they, they had good information, but they made it sound like, you know, your life is over. And often, you know, families will say, oh, well, you know, they can't drive anymore, so they can't go out for a walk. Or I had one gentleman who really loved baseball, and his he'd unfortunately been paranoid of his son um, unfoundedly. And so he got a conservator, but the conservator wouldn't let him go to a baseball game when if they had just gotten a box seat and gone early and made a little party of it, you know, he could be at the ball game and then he could leave after everyone else. And, you know, I think that it's important to figure out for that person what makes life worth living and be there. You know, they might not remember Cousin Sue, they might not remember that they loved opera, but they might still really like music and they might like, you know, hitting a tambourine or a, a drum and singing. And so 
you go with whatever seems to work at the moment. Um, and that is where you find the joy. I don't know if I could tell a one minute story. Sure. So I do house calls in the San Francisco Bay area and, you know, I'm usually on the road and, you know, after I finish with the patient, I go on to the next patient and every, you know, every day is divided up into 15 minute intervals. So I had a little bit of time and I was sitting out in a courtyard at a facility talking to one of my patients and his daughter. And there were a couple other ladies from uh, the community there. And it was just, you know, and I just kind of relaxed. I was talking to, you know, this woman and we were talking to the other residents as well. Um, And the conversation wasn't always linear, but it was just commenting on what was going on around there and how nice the, you know, the flowers smelled and, you know, what we were going to do for dinner and those sorts of things. And it was just really pleasant. And I don't usually slow down. And it made me realize that, you know, we don't have to have the strict construct of knowing, you know, the day, the date, the year, (laughs) and who the president is, that we can just enjoy each other's presence. Um, And that was kind of the impetus for, um, I'm on the board of Connected Horse, which is another living in the moment Type activity uh, founded by my friends Paula Hertel and Nancy Sharon Selmo, where they work with local barns, where they train them how to work with people with dementia and their caregivers um, to give them a experience which they can do something novel and fun and get out of the you know the caregiver uh, patient relationship where one is always telling the other one what to do. There's enough people around to keep everyone safe, but they have the joy of being together, doing something novel, you know, and who doesn't love horses? And horses are very good at reading the room. Um, and so you talk about the horses, you're, you're grooming the horses and, you know, you're, you know, enjoying the afternoon out at the barn. Then they sit down and have lunch of soup and bread together. And it's just so healing. And, and I'm hoping that people can recognize that even though they've lost a lot, you know, that there's still a lot of joy there. And to that point, and that's very helpful, Dr. Landsberg, just to help family members understand kind of the kind of change in the approach. Why at the same time, and again, you emphasize this in your book about the importance for families to intervene early and act as quickly as possible. What did you mean by that? Well, um, it can be hard to identify dementia. Often I hear families, they usually find me after they've worked with four or five doctors, you know, things, things go off the rail. People can um, get more angry than they mean to. They can, they're at risk to hurt themselves. Or if they are driving, they could hurt other people and not only hurt um, other people, but if they cause injury, you know, they could put the whole family at financial risk. So just very pragmatically, you really want to understand what's going on. If, you know, someone's behavior is, you know, very different than it was 10 or 15 years ago. I mean, if they've always been completely unreliable and, you know, they aren't good with money, well, then that's not a change. But if they were, or if, you know, you often hear about the, you know, the very, 
um, thoughtful church lady who all of a sudden is swearing like a sailor and is really mean to family members. I think the thing that's most heartbreaking is if that's not recognized and not addressed, everyone will decide that, you know, Aunt Sue is just, you know, nasty now and we're not going to have anything to do with them. And that breaks my heart more than anything because those behaviors can be treated and it's not well recognized. And to that point, then, my sense is, uh, and again, you talked about this in your book, that it's really important to define goals of care and and help us understand a little bit more about that. Why is defining goals of care necessary? And And to that point, then, how are priorities identified and what considerations need to be included? Obviously, you're telling us the approach is different now. And how does the family, along with their loved one who's been diagnosed with dementia, what are the next steps in terms of care? Well, I think the first thing that I always do when I meet with a new elder and you know family members or um, conservators is to figure out for that person what makes life worth living. And then we construct a support team around them to protect and help them live the way they want to. Um, I think you know, for people who don't have dementia or have early dementia, I think the first thing that needs to happen is that the elder needs to sit down with everyone who's you know, important to them, family and friends alike, and discuss, you know, here's what I want to do. Here's how I want to live my life. Um, and here's the people I'd like to help me. So while an elder can, it's really important that they come up with um, who's going to help them fin- with their financial affairs when they can going to help them with their medical affairs. And it's really important to uh, choose someone trustworthy. You know, often they choose the adult son or daughter or uh, the spouse, but that might not always be the best choice. And one woman had chosen her friend um, because, you know, her son wasn't as trustworthy. And then she got to the point where she had, you know, quite significant dementia and she had hallucinations and delusions. And her friend was running her, you know, resort up in the mountains. Son came in and took the woman who obviously had dementia to a new lawyer and got all the papers changed and took control of her house and then put her in a nursing home. I mean, so it was it's important to choose someone that you can trust. And sometimes if there's a lot of conflict in the family, it's a good idea to choose an outside um, organization such as in our area. There's um, the Jewish Family Services that provides fiduciary services and home care services and care managers. So, you know, it's important to kind of think about what's likely to happen and then how you would like things to happen. And the other thing that's really important, though, is to be realistic about the money. You know, it might be like, well, I want to stay in my house forever, but that's really expensive if you need care. You know, if you need care. 12 hours a day, 24 hours a day. That can be $100,000 a year. Well, and and to that point, in fact, I think that that's helpful because I wanted to ask one more question before the break, and that is my sense is that based on the progress of whatever type of dementia someone has, these these care goals are are going to be have to to change 
Um, and I would assume that the family members will have to think about that and perhaps determine what questions will need to be asked in that. Do you see that also with your patients? Oh, the, the course of dementia is a roller coaster. So come up with a plan. I mean, geriatrics is plan A, B, and C. Come up with a plan to help, you know, the elder just have um, someone come in and help them with some cooking and cleaning three times a week. Um, but then if they're having trouble and they're having more falls, then you have to reassess and find them more help. Or if they're refusing all care, you have to think about, you know, well, maybe it's not working at home. Maybe they need to be in a community. Uh, it, it is something that you have to be open to and just aware of. It, it can be helpful to have like a care manager, uh, someone who's seen uh, these sorts of problems in families before and knows the resources in the community to help you figure out, okay, well, this happened, so we need to think about doing, you know, this next step. And when these decisions are being made, is it usual um, that the person who has been diagnosed with dementia, that they're involved in the decision-making, or does it really depend on what their level of dementia is at a certain point as to how much they can participate in next steps? Well, exactly. I mean, as I mentioned before, it's good to do the planning early when the elder can tell you exactly what they want and how they want to do things and who they trust. So they're the ones who kind of put it together. What gets tricky is when the benches progress to the point where the elder doesn't have their judgment, but they still sociably sound okay. So people defer to them. You know, it's like, well, the dad doesn't want to give up his car. <laughs> it's important to him. Like, no, this is risky. Um, that's when you need to get uh, others involved, often, you know, the doctor or calling the Alzheimer's Association, you know, to looking for resources. They help, you know, we're, we're not quite sure which way to go. Can you give us some guidance? Well, we want to get into some other really important issues uh, that uh, are a part of the process uh, for caregivers and those who are diagnosed with uh, dementia. But we're going to take a short break here. And uh, in case you tuned in late, we are talking with Dr. Elizabeth Landsberg, who is a geriatrician and also the author of Living in the Moment, Overcoming Challenges and Finding Moments of Joy in Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias. And you are listening to WERA Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Welcome back. We are having an excellent discussion about dementia and caregiving, and we learned a lot in the first part of this interview about basic understanding of levels of care and decision-making. And 
wanted to point out again, we're talking with Dr. Elizabeth Landsberg, who is a geriatrician and wrote the book called Living in the Moment, Overcoming Challenges and Finding Moments of Joy in Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias. So one thing that is really something that I'm sure families think about, and and certainly those who have been diagnosed with dementia, is the whole area of medications. And so we really want to hear more about that, uh, Dr. Landsberg. What should caregivers know about the risks and the benefits of medications that an individual diagnosed with dementia is taking, the ones that they took before they were diagnosed and perhaps even uh, medications that are available now for treating Alzheimer's? We'd like to hear about all of that. Well, I think the the best way to describe, you know, the risks of medications is that um, on my website, drlizgeriatrics.com, I have a video about Bruce. And he's a gentleman who um, had a heart attack, a stroke, he was put on some Ativan and other things. And then he got suicidal ideation, tried to jump off a bridge, was put in a hospital, given, you know, more and more psych meds and ended up in a nursing home. You know, couldn't walk, couldn't talk, couldn't eat. And then his wife brought him to me. And so we started taking off, you know, the medication. Often, if people are having trouble uh, sleeping or they're acting a little, quote, anxious, or they're just, you know, being restless, they often get given medications in the Valium family. You know, these days it's more often Advan or Xanax. And those medications can cause amazing damage you know, and cause problems all by themselves. They can be very helpful if you have to go into the hospital and you have to have a procedure, you know, such as having your gallbladder out and you need to be relaxed enough to have, you know, a CAT scan and then surgery, but that should be then tapered off very quickly. Um, when you use it a lot, it can, people become addicted, become more confused, more irrational. Uh, they can become paranoid. They have an increased risk of falls. Uh, night and day, and it can make them look more demented, you know, just from the side effects of the medication. And in Bruce's case, as we took off, you know, the Ativan and then other medications, he started to eat, he started to walk, he went home. In a couple months, he went on a cruise, and within six months, he was back serving Christmas mass as a deacon again. So that to me is kind of a warning story that when we look at an elder and we look at their function, we look at their behavior, we can't take that separate from medications that they're on. Um, there are a lot of medications that can make people look more agitated and more confused. And if you stop the medication, and some of them like the, the Ativan and Xanax, you have to taper slowly. Otherwise, you go into withdrawal and are more agitated. Um, but if when you take those medications away, the elder's behavior is better. You know, I would say first thing to watch out for are anticholinergic medications. Um, choline is what the nerves use to talk to each other and, you know, make brain function. And if you take something that's anticholinergic, you find that in allergy pills like in Zyrtec, Benadryl, in bladder pills that they often give women, you know, for urinary incontinence such as Citropan, Detrol, Vesicare. Actually, this is all on my website. Uh, drlizgeriatrics.com and in the book, Living in the Moment. Uh, so, I, I, so you don't have to scribble down all of these. 
but just the, the category of anticholinergic medications and the most common is the Tylenol PM, Advil PM. I'm, I'm always shocked when I go to the pharmacy and there's a whole wall of these, you know, quote, PM medications, which means some pain reliever with um, Benadryl. And that by itself can make someone look like they have dementia when their um, function is not as bad. Uh, so it's extremely important that, you know, families are aware of this and doctors be aware of it. But, you know, what's, what's troubling to me is that um, there are only 3,500 practicing geriatricians in the country. And um, many doctors don't have more than a month of geriatric training. And of that, they get maybe a couple days of uh, instruction on exactly what needs to be done differently for people with And so it's not recognized. And, you know, that's part of why I wrote the book. That's part of why I'm doing this is that, you know, Bruce got his life back. I mean, and, and after we um, fixed his medications and he went home, he's been home for the last five years. So people can, you know, it, it's really stealing the life of elders that uh, could otherwise be enjoying their lives. And I think that's what's upsetting to me. Well, and I think what you're saying, too, this is not only uh, true in terms of so many medications of in connection with individuals who have been diagnosed with dementia, but that's often the case with uh, even individuals who are older adults and have different kinds of diagnosis. And um, thank you for that comment about the lack of geriatric training um, for physicians, because I think that's true. The older adults are different than younger people and have to, based on their health conditions and uh, medications, have to be looked at in a different way than, um, than younger people. And so thank you for that comment. Certainly. Um, I think you know, one thing I, I'm going to put in a plug for, uh, there is a whole industry, and it's disappointing that, you know, some medical doctors are, you know, kind of playing on people's anxieties and fears and telling them that, oh, if you buy my prebiotic, my probiotic, my supplements, you can cure dementia. Um, you, you can't dementia that way. Um, there are no studies and they don't have studies. They just, what they do is they say, you know, well, my patient, Mrs. Smith, you know, was driving, had a uh, job and then she got dementia and she couldn't drive and couldn't have a job. And then she took my supplements and then she could drive and have a job again. And I was like, well, that's not a study. <laughs> so there's the risk of, you know, taking things that you don't know what it is. Good news is, is that having a plant-based diet, having, you know, 30 minutes of exercise a day can keep us stronger and more independent as we age. And yes, it's really important to, you know, be uh, aware of those medications and um, avoid the sleeping pills, um, take care of our day-to-day -day health, you know, getting our exercise. Um, it's the Alcohol makes us not sleep well. Caffeine makes us not sleep well. Cigarettes make us not sleep well. And those are the sorts of things that will, you know, get people to start taking sleeping pills. And then that can start, you know, causing more problems. 
Right. One area uh, that I did want to move into in connection with our topic today is the possibility of behavioral problems, which, depending on the type of dementia, may occur. Talk about that. What what are possible behavioral problems? And um, I guess, again, based on what we're talking about insofar as medications, are there medications that should be used for these kinds of behavioral problems? What do families and those who are diagnosed with dementia need to know about about this this issue? Well, th- that's a very good question, and that's what I spend about 90% of my time uh, uh, taking care of. So the geriatric principles, you know, work in just about every area. And here we start by taking uh, away the medications that cause more agitation. Um, so we start with taking away those. Then we address pain. It is heartbreaking that particularly elders are do not have their pain often addressed. And if someone has dementia, and they might not be able to say, oh, my shoulder that hurts, um, but they're just more irritable and agitated because their shoulder hurts, they're more likely to get something like Ativan than they are to get Highland. Um, and that I think is, I'd like to take a couple minutes to talk about the pain aspect because that's huge. Um, there was a study that uh, people without dementia who were having hip surgery and 50% reported before and after that they had severe hip pain. And 75% of those without dementia did not get adequate pain treatment. The people with dementia in that study who had surgery only got one-third the amount of narcotics of the people uh, that did not have dementia. And those people, only 25% of them had their pain relieved. So we're missing a lot of um, a lot of pain and suffering, and we're calling it agitation, and we're just sedating it. Um, we can give something as simple as Tylenol, physical therapy. Um, there's a lot of push now to be using Motrin and Naproxen. I'm just, you know, these are my little bet noir issues that I'm popping in here. You know, seeing that these days, if we're trying to avoid narcotics or Norco, um, a lot of elders are being given long-term Motrin or Naproxen or medications in that category. But those I have found to be more risky than low-dose Norco for serious pain. Um, they're associated with increased heart attack, stroke, stomach bleed, kidney failure. You know, so it's not it, it's easier for the doctor, but it's not good for the elder. So treating the pain, making sure you're using the right medications for the pain, and then the other thing that a lot of people are more aware of these days is called person-centered care. You know, is taking care of the needs of the elder. Uh, are they wet? Do they have a wet breeze? Are they hungry? Are they cold? Um, have they been sitting in the wheelchair with 30 other people with a loud TV for the last two hours? And that's agitating them. You know, what are their needs? And then engaging them, doing the things they enjoy doing. Um, so person-centered care, you know, everyone should have that all the time. Part of that is that you recognize that, well, this person doesn't like a lot of people around. They're 
hearing might not be terribly good, and they do better in a quiet area with a one-to-one activity. So you don't put them in a big community, excuse me, in a, a big room with 30 people and a lot of promotion because they're going to get more agitated. But you can do an activity with two or three people, you know, where they're playing balloon volleyball or something, and they do quite well. So using the uh, behavioral interventions when someone's agitated is always, you know, the first step. Um, And then if that doesn't work, then we have to think about using the right um, psychoactive medication. And there's a lot of question about where does the agitation come from? You know, is it always related to unmet needs? And there's some that would suggest that, well, you know, if the family just took care of the needs and they were loving, there wouldn't be, you know, paranoia, aggression, delusions. And I think that's very unfair to the family. That's pretty much like suggesting that, you know, someone who's schizophrenic had a cold mother when they were a child, which is, you know, vintage 1950s psychiatry. You're really giving up, uh, bringing up a, a, a good point that I also wanted to get your perspective on, because as you are working with these individuals and their families, the family members are an important component. And help us understand, explain a little bit more about how can family members cope on a day-to-day basis when living with someone who's been diagnosed with dementia? How do you handle that? Well, the first thing I would say is no one person can take care of another person all the time. Uh, There's studies that show that the caregiver is stressed and the fact that they don't have any time to take care of their own needs um, and health uh, are more likely to have a decline in health and even, you know, earlier death. So I'm glad you brought that up. One of the important things is when you're talking about, you know, the needs of an elder and what their wishes are uh, for the future is you determine, you know, how are you going to support them? Often I see family members end up with usually the the daughter that lives closest, you know, gives up her life for five years, 13 years. Um, and then everyone else is like, yeah, well, thank you, Sue. You know, but we're not going to give you any money for this. <laughs> when mom dies, you know, we're going to divide up everything, you know, as if you hadn't done anything differently. And that's not okay. A, you know, someone who's caring for someone else the elders' money and assets need to be used for the support of their care. So if there's no one else around Sue, you know, then money needs to be used to bring in other help when Sue needs a break. Or if they just really aren't working at home, sometimes it's the elder is refusing all care. It's their escaping. It's their un- unsafe around the stove and those sorts of things, and they need to go into a dementia community. Then their money needs to be used for that. Um, it, I've also seen, you know, situations where particularly husbands feel that, you know, they don't want to put their wives in one of those places and they made a vow and, you know, they must take care of them to the bitter end, but then they can get really frustrated when, you know, they have incontinence accidents or they're spilling or, you know, they need more care. And that's when you can get, um, elder abuse they don't really mean to. They just need more help. Um, And they may have some early cognitive changes themselves. So it's important that the family or, you know, the community around them recognize when a caregiver is really struggling 
and then help support to get to a care situation that's more sustainable. And what I'm hearing you say, uh, Dr. Landsberg, is that it, it is really necessary to acknowledge the point of view and feelings of not only the family, but even the person who's diagnosed with dementia. And uh, so it seems like all of this is really an important part of the overall approach. And one thing that I, again, saw in your book is about structure. And so I was just wondering if that particular word, structure, is especially applicable uh, to helping acknowledge the point of view and feelings of the person that's diagnosed with dementia as well as the family members. What, what would we need to know? Well, structure on several levels. Um, you need structure for you know, what the elder would like to do. Um, if they don't enjoy going to um, a day program uh, with a lot of other people, you know, you can't, it, you can send them there, but then you're probably going to have more problems um, if they, in, you know, but, but most everyone enjoys going for a walk. Um, so if you have a day structured with one or two activities, you know, that might seem kind of boring to the adult children who are like, well, mom's not doing anything. But, you know, she might just enjoy um, sitting with her caregiver, enjoying the garden or flower arranging um, and not needing to do something every hour, which is different than having a caregiver who just turns on the TV and then spends, you know, six hours on their phone. Um, so you have to, engagement, I think, is really important. And, and that follows on what does the elder like to do? They like to, you know, still bake, but they can't do things themselves. And so someone else needs to take the lead and they're there to help. Um, with the family, I would say that it's really important to keep structure uh, for the routine for the elder. Uh, particularly what I think the problem is uh, with bedtimes. It's like, you know, with kids, you want to have regular sleep schedules, regular schedule of getting up, you know, having exercise, having meals at certain times, because it just helps with the predictability and it, you know, it, it often takes people with dementia longer to accomplish tasks. So the other part is you have to um, bake in the time that it's going to take to get from, you know, activity A to activity B or if someone, you know, has always bathed uh in the evening you know you're not going to want to it's going to be hard to get them to start the day with a, a bath or a shower so you want to kind of go with what seems to work with the elder um but just one more point about the the sleeping is i often see that if someone didn't sleep well one night and it's like if you let them sleep for a couple hours in the afternoon they will not sleep as well at night and then I hear, well, they didn't sleep so well at night, so I, I have to let them sleep during the day. Or, you know, they, they just want to sleep. If you do that, they're going to flip day-night. They're going to be more unpredictable. They're going to be more, you know, irritable. And it's going to be harder to manage the day. So structure for what they like to do and the structure for how it works through the day and then having a consistent schedule. And you've been giving a lot of examples already. Is this what 
you also mean in terms of personal care strategies, uh, bath time or meal time or going for a walk? Is that what's meant by personal care strategies, or are there additional examples that maybe you haven't mentioned yet? Just wanted to clarify that. That's a lot of it. Uh, I had one, um, I remember one family wanted, they brought me in to keep this woman in her chair during the day at a, at a board and care. And I'm like, no one can stay in a chair all day. <laughs> you need to engage her. I think you need to move her. And the family's like, well, we're not going to do that. And so they fired me and I'm sure they got someone just to sedate her. And that, that's not an okay way to do it. Um, another example would be a, a gentleman at a dementia facility who was at wheelchair, he was at the, excuse me, there was a gentleman at a dementia community and he was at the elevator and he was really angry and he had a cane, he was in his wheelchair and there were four or five people from, you know, the care staff trying to tell him why he needed to put down the cane and he shouldn't yell and those sorts of things. And I realized that, you know, the more people get in the situation and they come at something, you know, directly, it was causing more conflict. So I kind of told them to all move back. You know, I, I said, come on, Mr. Smith, let's go get some ice cream. Um, and I will share my secret that ice cream resolves, you know, much <laughs> conflict and agitation out there. And sometimes I need to share a cup of ice cream because sometimes people are a little paranoid and, you know, they don't want to take something themselves. But if you can diffuse the situation, and in this situation, I took him from you know the side, and I took the wheelchair, and then I got a hold of the cane and just put that you know off to the side, and wheeled him somewhere else, and got him a treat, and that diffused. So you know the behavioral interventions and person-centered care, I think it's definitely always the approach that you need to start with for elders, and then you know, I have a whole section in the book. I have. Um, podcast about this, about treating the agitation with, you know, sometimes you need antipsychotics. And there are some people who say, oh, they don't work. And you're just trying to sedate elders, which if done correctly is not true. You know, from the disease itself, you can have delusions, you can have paranoia, you can have severe aggression. And if you don't take care of these um, behaviors, no one's going to accept this person. And often what happens is if someone gets admitted to the hospital because they're too aggressive, they stay there 60 days in an age where heart attacks stay for about three days. Um, and that costs about $600,000. And then no nursing home, no assisted living is going to take them. And I've often seen, you know, after a week, they'll go back to the eight-year-old wife and say, okay, take him home, <laughs> which doesn't work. But if you use, you know, the medications to take the edge off of the uh, quick anger, to take the edge off the paranoia and delusion, but not to sedate them. You know, the loved one can sometimes be managed at home or be in a nicer dementia community than they would otherwise. And I think that's another point that I don't see made often, um, which I think is a real disservice to those elders with dementia who have serious, you know, psychiatric uh, behaviors. Well, all of those points that you're making are so important in terms of medications. I'm sure that our listeners are 
really appreciating your advice on that. Um, we're getting towards the end of the interview, but I wanted to cover one other important topic um, before we um, finish this interview, and that has to do with legal matters. And help us understand what legal matters need to be considered when caring for a person diagnosed with dementia. Well, that's a very good point. Uh, there's a chapter about that in the book, and I think it's on, the, on my website as well. Um, while someone still has their capacity to make decisions, as I said, it's important to have them state what's important to them, but they should also write up the will and if they have the asset trust um, and put in place the people you know, that they can rely on to put their needs first. Because if you choose a trustee or a DPOA, a durable power of attorney for finance, they have control of your money. And, you know, they should take care of you. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes they just decide, well, you know, I deserve this. <laughs> so we're going to, I've seen situations where even very wealthy people um, end up having their money used by someone else for their own needs. Um, and one prominent gentleman um, who I knew was worth tens of millions of dollars and had been prominent in the community, uh, was put in an okay facility, you know, but I saw him in a steel, sea of wheelchairs when he had the money to be either at home with care or at a very nice facility. So it, it, it's critical who you choose to help you with that. Um, you want to have your um, advanced care directives, you know, do you want to be resuscitated? And a quick point to that is that when we're 50-60, chance of being resuscitated is 30% or less. It's not like in the ER, you know, shows on TV. When we're 80 or 90 and we don't have the reserve for our heart and our lungs and our brain, the chance of being brought back from sudden death or having your heart stop are less than 1%. And it's quite traumatic. You know, they're, they're pushing on your chest and they can break bones and they intubate you. And then if someone does wake up, and they're intubated in the ICU, they can't communicate, and they don't know what's going on. It's very scary. So I think it's important to think about, you know, those issues as well. Um, and then have everything written down and have it discussed with the family. Because the worst thing that can happen is, you know, someone collapses and goes to the hospital, and then you know, a, a cousin Sue comes in from, you know, Texas or something and says, wait, you know, you're killing mom, you're not doing everything for her. And so, you know, that can cause a lot of conflict where, as if you discussed the elders' wishes with everyone at the beginning, you know, everyone would have been on a uh, closer on the same page. Well, those are all excellent uh, suggestions, and I'm sure that um, folks are writing everything down that you're, you're saying. So last question, You've obviously been um, talking about the, the content of your book, which, as I said, is also excellent. Any other resources that um, you would suggest that could help persons living with dementia, diagnosed with dementia, and, and their care partners and families that you'd like to share? Um, I think the Alzheimer's Association does a good job with support groups, uh, early diagnosis groups, so people can get together and talk about things themselves. There's Family Caregiver Alliance, uh, which supports families. I think what's really helpful is a local uh, dementia care support group. Uh, those are um, 
valuable because those people are going through the same things you are. Um, and my friend Tammy Anastasia written a book uh, as well uh, for dementia caregivers. She's a go-to for me when there's conflict in the family and she's a good dementia coach. So um, there, there's help out there. You can find us at Dr. Liz Geriatric. Actually, one thing that I had wanted to do was have three levels of intervention, you know, a website free um, to have um, moderate price uh, training modules and the book. Uh, training modules we give CEUs for elder care professionals uh, that you know folks often need training every year and it's hard to find. And then we do in-depth telehealth. Uh, I am available as a geriatrician. Uh, I also have Tammy Anastasia and a gerontologist and a care manager. And we can do a more in-depth dive. You can send us the information um, and then we do a video visit and I'll write up an assessment that you can take to your doctor. So we're trying to you know, be a platform for folks at all different levels um, and, and be there for families because it's tough. Well, that's a good way of ending this uh, this program. So I do want to thank Dr. Elizabeth Lansfork, who is, again, a geriatrician and author of Living in the Moment, Overcoming Challenges, and Finding Moments of Joy in Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias, for joining me today. So thank you, Dr. Lansfork. Well, thank you, Cheryl. This has been delightful. So if uh, listeners want to learn more about Aging Matters, you can visit our website at agingmattersonline.com. And of course, you go on this website and you can find all of the Aging Matters radio and TV show content. And of course, also log on to the Aging Matters podcast on Apple and Spotify. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media. You can learn more about that company at inkmouthmedia.com. So thank you. For listening to Aging Matters today. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week.